Uh, welcome. The recent attacks on the U.S. Capitol, which were not welcome, were a display of victimization by Trump supporters pushing back against the threat of political power they had enjoyed for the last four years getting taken away. Recently, we discussed the alliance between political conservatives and right-wing Christians. Now, that led to a new media ecosystem in the 1980s. If you want a plug for a book, it's Yohai Bankler's uh, Network Propaganda, resulting in an outrage culture that led to the dominance of conservative politics. Our guest today argues that a series, a series of perceived threats to American suburbanites in the latter part of the 20th century fueled the rise of this right-wing outrage media ecosystem expressed in that attack on the U.S. Capitol. To talk about those issues, we are joined by Kyle Reismandel, Interim Director of Law, Technology, and Culture at the New Jersey Institute of Technology at Rutgers and the author of the book, Neighborhood of Fear. The Suburban Crisis in American Culture, 1975 to 2001. Kyle, or maybe Professor, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jefferson. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Let's start by the years you picked. Why did you start with the years, 1975 to 2001? So... Like a lot of things, right? Projects are practical. Um, they have to be doable. So there is, in some sense, uh, the practical aspect of doing that much work in the time you have. Um, but generally speaking, the histories of the suburbs have covered that early period pretty thoroughly, right? So immediate post-war up until, right, the tax revolt of the 1970s and sort of the Reagan Revolution. And there really hadn't been a history since then, um, particularly one that was uh, more global in scope, right? So a lot of the books about the suburbs are case studies that sort of use one particular suburb or one region to illuminate some set of ideas about, you know, race or taxes, et cetera. Um, so part of it was I wanted to see as a question, what happened after that, right? What's sort of the outcome as we move into the end of the 20th century? And the second part was when I asked that question, what I found was this shift that I mark in the book, right? That there is this other era, right? So as many people I think have noted and probably you're aware of, you know, the suburbs were defined by fear in many ways before this. Um, and so calling it the neighborhood of fear in some sense is about what are these new fears or how do they connect to the old fears and how do they change, right? To your point about what are people afraid of and how do they feel victimized and what do they do? And so as I went through and looked at the sources, particularly news media, popular culture, saw the expression of fear, but also the reproduction of fear, right? That people are saying they're scared or worried, but also that it's on the nightly news, it's in the newspaper, it's in Newsweek, it's on the TV, it's on the movie screens, et cetera, right? So that really defines the sort of beginning point. And then the end point probably is sort of implicit, right? The 2001, 9-11 uh, and post 9-11 culture is also a market shift. And so I do think the neighborhood of fear is adapted, right, in the 9-11 era, but uh, having the time to properly research and write that was uh, not in the cards. Um, so it, it sort of, that endpoint made a lot of sense because I know that the next part of that project uh, would have required a lot more work. And probably on Earth 2, there's a book that's twice as long that I wrote, you know, but um, uh, on the Earth I live on right now, there's just not quite the time to do that part. So what was the big change in that fear? How did the neighborhoods change in their fear from that post-war era, let's call it pre-1975, mm -hmm. to 1975 going forward? So what you have is the continuing expansion of the suburbs, right? So the things that are probably familiar in culture of suburban sprawl, unplanned development, and still masses of people moving to the suburbs, right? To, to have this American dream, um, home ownership, upward mobility, at some level, some level local control over space and government. So that continues apace. 
uh, that doesn't really, it, it in some ways expands right throughout the, the 1975 and after period. But what happens is those suburbanites end up confronting the outcome of development, right? So in terms of environmental threats, it is very toxic waste and other kinds of things that are endangering the nat natural landscape that really just weren't visible in the previous period. Um, same thing with burglary, kidnapping, um, the cultural threats that become visible through popular culture, like Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the Satanic Panic, etc. So part of it is those threats are actually apparent to suburbanites where they live in a way they were not before. And they're also more visible because of the way the culture had changed, right? And so this is part of the bigger picture of the new right and the rightward turn in politics and culture that they were prepared to see themselves as victimized, right? So on the left, environmentalism says, yeah, you should be afraid of what's in your water. This is a legitimate concern to have. People are being poisoned and die, right? You see um, Love Canal, you know, hundreds of people poisoned by this very toxic waste. So it's very real. Um, they're at the case of Adam Walsh, right? It says kidnapping is real. You should be afraid for your child, et cetera, et cetera. So the politics of law and order, the politics of environmentalism, et cetera, prepared people to be victimized just as real things were happening that suggested it could actually happen. And that's in that sort of early to mid 1970s period. Yeah, you seem to make sort of three central claims that we were points that we took away in preparation. The 1970s marked an era in which suburban residents were faced by those new environmental, social, moral threats mm -hmm. that previously existed in suburban development, but became more visible in media. You mentioned the case, and and we've looked at data showing the uh, over. Well, the outsized coverage of child abductions mm -hmm. relative to other kinds of crime, relative to even loss of human life, et cetera. And yeah. then second, in response, Runeite's leveraging uh, productive victimization, again, using the word that you've and we've already used to expand power, to expand authority, and then actions taken by suburbanites to help facilitate and then were facilitated by the era's dominant conservative culture and politics. Is that is that a fair is that a fair characterization? What would I, or, or, or a fair synopsis? Yeah, no, it, it, it is. And I think, you know, the one thing that I always try to make clear that, you know, when I'm talking about it is, it, it is not random or accidental, right? That um, it's the outgrowth of growth itself, right? Of actual physical development of the landscape. It's the movement of more people, right? So you concentrate more people, you're likely to see more things like crime. Um, and it's the emergence of these bigger political post-war movements that make threats visible, right? So you're able to see satanic panic happen, right? You're afraid of Dungeons and Dragons because someone is telling you that it's a threat, right? Whereas your instinct or your inclination might be, they're playing board games in the basement, right? You know, these, you know it's Connect Four, it's Dungeons and Dragons, doesn't really matter, hungry, hungry hippos. Um, but when you're, there's a drumbeat and there's a frame for understanding this this way, you're more likely to see it as a threat. So one of the hardest things about writing the book, and maybe you found this in reading it, is how to, convey that these things are happening at the same time, right? So the book is sort of organized around those three threats. And I tell sort of each story individually, right? But they're all actually happening at the same time. So the same time of Love Canal, you know, you know three, four years later is Adam Walsh at the same time as the bucolic burglary, burglary wave. Ooh, it's hard to say. Um, and then, you know, just a few years later is this, this massive spike in suburban teen suicide. So, you know, th these are happening at the same time, even though they're happening maybe in different venues of suburbanites' lives. And going to suburbs specifically, suburbs have been referred to by, you know, some social critics as fake or phony. Uh, others have described them as the absence of place, right? Or the mm -hmm. or they are defined by their uh, their proximity to a space, but they are not themselves a space. Mm -hmm. They're not. 
themselves a place. You refer instead to suburbs as neighborhoods of fear. In fact, they are a space. They have definition. They are a place. They're defined by a thing. And you say fear. Why do you think that is a better way to understand, not necessarily mutually exclusive, but a better way, more appropriate way to describe the late 20th century American suburb? I tend to think of the suburban essentialism as ahistorical or largely um, not really rooted in us in evidence that is historically minded, let's say, right? So there are definitely critics, there are definitely advocates and people who sort of make this argument you're making, right? So one of two ways that, and, and this has been prevalent since the suburbs have existed, even in the 19th century, right? Or sort of the upper class version of a suburb. But the idea that they are cultureless, bland, place, you know, places that do not exist, right? In the way you put it. James Howard Kunstler's book, The Geography of Nowhere, right? So trying to understand how do people occupy a space that has no meaning or only is sort of defined by its you know, negative space, as you point out, or in relation to something else, right? A suburb. And I think ultimately as historians or like where I'm coming from and where the project originally germinated in graduate school some time ago now was no one had, I shouldn't say no one, but taking as your object of study, what is this place, right? Is, if it exists and it has these things, we have to understand it. So to me, I, I guess I would ask the question differently is why did someone at that time think of the suburbs as fake or phony? What does that say about them? How does that constitute the politics or culture of that moment? And what can we understand by looking at presentations of the suburb as fake or phony? Because I'm sure as everybody, you know, if anyone's watching this is probably you're aware, you know, every five or 10 years, we get this kind of pop culture representation, pulling back the curtain, right? Revealing the true suburb, not this facade suburb. Um, and that, I always think like, well, why, what are those representations really about? What, what is the facade in that moment? And what is the real in that moment? And what do they have to do with each other? So, you know, uh, Mr. Blanding's builds his dream house in 1948 or revolutionary road in 1960 or 62 ordinary people in 1980, American beauty, desperate housewives. Right. And you know, that's like, we're skimming the top of these representations. All right. So all great movies all about the American <laughs> summer. Right. So, so I, I guess my point is like that this idea that we're always peeling back the layer or whatever is, I, I would take one more step back and say, why is this the way we approach the suburb? Why is this the way we think about it versus the way I'm approaching it, which is what is this place? Well, I've got a lazy hypothesis as an answer to your <laughs> question, which is that they were defined by city kids, right? That, that the, in fact, some of the same motivation that made, uh, made Barry Diller recommend the Fox news media strategy to Rupert Murdoch, that mm -hmm. he said, Hey, there's a demography here. That's a, there's a constituency here. That's not being directly spoken to is because uh, that, that, uh, the idea of a, of a liberal media was uh, vastly overstated or misstated. The, the presence and dominance of urban media, where mm -hmm. the residents were cosmopolitan, et cetera, that doesn't seem to be overstated. That'd be my lazy hypothesis to why they're defining suburbs, because it was being defined by elsewhere. And I will, it was being defined, the identity was being defined not by the suburbanites, the identity was being defined by somebody who worked at the you know, newspaper, which was located downtown. No, I, I, I agree quite a bit with that, because, again, if you look at those texts I highlighted, either scholarly, popular journalism or popular culture, they're almost all from the perspective of the urbane, right? Like, yeah, James Howard Kunstler is writing about the suburbs this way because he's not from there and doesn't like them, Right. Um, the critiques of, uh, you know, uh, um, the theme song to Weeds, right, um, which was written in the 1950s. Right. So like, you know, these little boxes. Yeah. Right. Again, it's a critique. Right. It's coming from a place of. I'm not going to understand actually what this is, but rather I'm coming from a place that this cannot be a place I, you know, endorse because it stands in for at different moments in time, consumerism, lack of culture, right? All the things you're sort of saying sort of anti-cosmopolitanism yeah. uh, yeah. that are 
an affront to a lot of these people or they don't think should exist in this way. And it has this huge political overlay because, of course, the suburban districts had an outside uh, influence on who decided mm -hmm. who ran Congress. Right. If you look at our state. Oh, yeah. You, you can predict, in fact, in the state of Oregon, not predict, you can understand it. You can understand how uh, when Democrats started winning statewide compared to Republicans entirely based on when Washington County, that's the suburban county in Portland, where like Beaverton mm -hmm. and Tiger is where like Nike is located. Right. Yeah, yeah. When that when that voted Republican, this state was had Republican statewide officials for decades straight when that flipped. Then all of a sudden we've had Democratic elected officials for decades straight. That 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 county is at an outside predictive role in the politics of our state. And I'm I'm assuming you've studied it more broadly. I'm a little bit of a homer, but I assume that similar dynamic has been true in other states as well. So there, there's a couple of things to unpack there. So one is you're totally right. So the rise of the suburb as a politically meaningful thing um, is due to that post-war expansion, right? So. Uh, uh, Lisa McGurr's book, Suburban Warriors, about sort of the coincidence of the emergence of sort of the far right and the new right of the 1950s and 60s and the building of the suburbs, particularly those outside of California and Orange County, you know, that sort of fuel each other, right? But it's also just a massive population shift from cities to suburbs, right? That California gains all of those seats because people are leaving cities to go live in the suburbs of California, yeah. right? It just becomes a massively populated area. Um, but I think the sort of other part is there's a, a good recent book about this as well um, by Lily Geismer called Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. And, you know, the essence of her argument is, though they are suburban liberals, right, in some sense, or, or proclaim to have progressive values, and this is in the context of the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s, um, what they actually do is drag the Democratic Party to the center, right, rather than pushing these liberal things, they actually end up being these kind of middle of the road suburbanites who hmm. are a practical mix of ideologies that have more to do with their locality than have to do with national politics, right? So it's the same reason why millions of those people could vote for Trump or Biden, but really at the end of the day, who's elected president will not affect their local power in any real material way, right? They're not, their investment is in maybe a stable government, their investment might be in the, some view of taxes, but like, they don't gain, stand to gain or lose very much around these kinds of cultural or spatial power questions in their localities. But it's interesting you say, well, that move in electoral power towards the suburbs uh, pushed Democrats central word, right? Sort of roughly speaking, right word. At the same time, though, it, it didn't seem to do that same thing to Republicans, right? Republicans were also moving rightward. So is that was that a dynamic of geography? Was that a dynamic of demography? Was that a dynamic of? I mean, it has to at least be a dynamic of media, it would seem. Uh, but how do you how do you think about it? Yeah, I would agree that the the shift in and, and it's not even necessarily shift, right? So I think again, like as you pointed out earlier. These kind of binary things we we tended to think about with the way the media works. There's a liberal media. There is a you know these are often essentially for most of their histories what we would call centrist or sort of now neoliberal, right? That they're concerned with making money, um, and that they're not necessarily invested in an agenda, a political agenda that's sort of explicitly liberal or progressive. So you know, and particularly like something like CBS, right? You know, run by William Paley, who was famously you know a, a conservative Republican friend of Nixon. So you know, I I think there is some of the ways in which more people came to see the world through this lens um, that was being advocated most famously by Reagan, but is being reproduced in any number of ways in the culture around the failure of government, right? That, that at its core, it doesn't do things well, efficiently, or for you. 
And so yeah. once that idea is sort of accepted as a mainstream political idea, even if you are a liberal, even if you're progressive, you're always reasoning from it, right? It's why Walter Mondale is crushed is he could say, yes, he, he's going to raise your taxes and we'll tell you, I'm telling you the truth, but they'd rather not hear the truth because they don't think raising their taxes is going to do anything, right? They don't believe his vision is going to lead to anything. Um, and this is why, at the least at the national level, you know, Bill Clinton and even Barack Obama at some level are in the middle, right, on these policies, are not looking to create government programs, are not looking to increase social spending, are not even really looking to increase taxes in any kind of meaningful way. I want to get to the NIMBY, which is the first you sort of divide the book into five pieces. People often divide books into chapters. Uh, Generally speaking, not always, you know. We're not breaking new ground on that one, I recognize. (laughs) But the so you talk about the age of the NIMBY and including environmental hazards. Uh, including sort of the spatial power of the suburban landscape. When when was even the, the NIMBY coined? When did when did that become itself a thing? People have always probably cared about what was near them. But of course, you know, what were there 25,000 people living in New York City when it was viewed as the greatest city in the world, you know, at the time of the revolution? It was a very small number of people. But yeah, talk about that one. I mean, New York wasn't even really the most important city in America at that point, right? But um, so we had this moment it, so again, part of the reason the book, the way the book is structured, but also the, the periodization is, as best I can tell, the use of the phrase NIMBY from all of my sources comes about in the late 70s and early 1980s, right, yeah. around these land use issues. And obviously, I think you said earlier, and I think rightly so, that it, it gets mobilized right in any number of contexts, usually as an expression of class and, and property power, right? So it's not exclusive to the suburbs, but I think it's important that it is seen as derived from the suburbs, that it is born out of these battles over space, which are in some ways more complicated than we might imagine when we think of the phrase NIMBY, right? So NIMBY, I think now has come to represent a sort of politics of um, exclusion, a politics of property rights, not a politics founded on any actual fear that is legitimate, right? Whereas, I, I, as I argue in the book, that the kernel of it comes from people who are legitimately scared by real threats, um, uh, particularly about space. Um, and, and so NIMBY is often used in the environmental context and not so much um, in the criminal context. So that sort of changes as you get closer to 2000. So the real fear of contamination of your water, the real fear of building a nuclear power plant in your neighborhood, the real fear of uh, um, power lines and what they might give off, right? You know, these suggestions that your environment you are ecologically connected to this environment. It is central to your health and well-being. And that if it is endangered, you are endangered. So I can say, I want a garbage incinerator. I want a nuclear power plant. I think those are good things for society. Um, but they should not be in my neighborhood because I own this property and my family is unsafe. And so that instinct and that ethic is founded in something legitimate, right? In many cases, not always. But it plays out, right? And this is the idea of the book is productive victimization is it's not just that you do stuff in response to threat, it's that you can do more stuff. You have more power, you are more prominent, you are more important. And so NIMBYism spreads to be a cultural designation more than an environmental one. And there's any number of examples of that, you know, like <laughs> we don't want this thing because, you know, it's not the character of the neighborhood, right? And this gets trotted out quite a bit in, in urban places as well. The want to reintroduce, we're talking to Kyle Reese-Mandel. The book is Neighborhood of Fear, already getting accolades. We like to talk to people sort of the front end, right? You're on the front end, believe me, you're on the front end. (laughs) Even before the accolades, right? Because then we could be like, well, you know, Maybe not many people are paying attention, but we we're always we're into early albums. You know what I'm saying? We're always in your old stuff. Like I'm still trying to. I'm I, I'm a big fan of your high school papers. Like other people, you know, like that's. What... 
I would love to show them to you. I, I actually picked up a box of stuff from my parents' house with my high school papers in them, and it was a hysterically horrible, embarrassing read. So uh, I, I, I will scan them, and we can we can show them to your audience. I'm sure they will. <laughs> show the no, it's a it's a lesson. I almost think that should happen because there's a, this idea. If you showed, like, we have a flawed idea of genius as something that was bestowed mm -hmm. upon us by Zeus, and so therefore somebody something that somebody did when they were eight and they're not Mozart would of course demonstrate that genius. It might not. It might be the rantings of a small eight year old. Who knows? No, you're 100% right. So, you know, I, I teach um, and I teach at a technical university, right? So these are people who are not going to college to learn history or humanities or literature, and they largely don't get taught to write. Um, and we actually, you know, we're, we're an institution in the, in the plus side is very diverse. We have many first generation college students, many non-native speakers. But one of the things, what you just said is what we teach, right? We say to them, writing is a skill you can learn, right? There are like, whatever, a hundred people ever who lived, who sit down and knew how to write. Everybody else worked their ass off and had to practice. Right. You want to be good at something you practice it, whatever it is. Right. So hockey, baseball, sports, singing, guitar, whatever it is. Right. You practice. And that's what classes we practice. We do it together. We get better. We take feedback. So you're totally right. I think, you know, demythologizing de writing and the writing process is extremely important, even for the professional professional um, published authors. Right. It, talking about process, I think, is extremely important. So I'm happy to address that if you want to. But no, you're, I know you're, I, you're I, more I just, interested in content. I the imagine. book is already. Yeah, the, 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 the book. I'm just saying the book has already got accolades and we're you know, we, we like to be early, but already accolades. But speaking of practice, you coin some you use some words that aren't in the full parlance of everybody, including effective practice, a, a affective practice, as well as the invisible prison, as well as toxic suburbia. Walk us through those terms a little bit. So um, those in particular do come from others. Um, yeah. So the idea of affective practice or the study of affect um, has been a sort of an emerging field that comes out of literary studies and disability, disability studies. Um, been theorized, you know, in, in any number of ways. And there are arguments about what we mean by affective studies. But in essence, we are trying to get at the roles in which our emotions and our emotional connections play to these other political questions of inclusion or power, right? Um, and so the way I use it in the book, and in, in some ways, I, I, I'd be very curious, actually, for someone who does some of that work, what they would think of it. I, I, I'm surprised, actually, there hasn't been um, pushback or some questions from it, just because I'm very curious uh, what they would think. But the idea is affective practices that you're doing things to assuage this fear, right? That they may not have the practical effect you hope, and at some level, you may not even think that it will have that practical effect. So uh, it's used in reference to environmental illness um, and the idea that, you know, chemical overload, multiple chemical sensitivity. Uh, and this is, and it's tricky again, right? Where there's a perspective in culture and in medicine that, the, that these conditions are psychosomatic, that they do not exist, right? Um, and then there's others uh, who I think are more sympathetic who say people experience real pain, right? That regardless of its cause, these people are clearly suffering. And so we must, as practitioners of medicine or psychiatry, address them, right? Address their pain, even if the medical establishment basically agrees it's not a diagnosable disease, right? In the way you would put into a book. So, so we use that affective practice because what you see is middle-class people uh, of means are able to address their emotions through these practices. They're able to buy salves, they're able to create these rooms, these outcast rooms, they're able to do all of these things to address what they see as an environmental danger in their own home. Their own home is killing them. Whereas, right, on the flip side, 
urban people, particularly urban people who are working class, particularly people of color, are stuck in apartments still that have lead paint, right? Yeah. Um, and they and they don't even have the practical material things to fight against that, even today, right? So we're not just talking about the 1970s or something. This is still ongoing, right? The Flint water crisis, the Newark water crisis, being further examples of how differences between you know affective practice to address something that we're not even sure how it works or if it's real versus you know the real material threat of poisoning. Fear stalks the streets. Uh, the rise of, including of home security. What, what do we know about when uh, security firms and the, the you know classical economics says that products arise in response to roughly speaking static demand, right? Something happens and therefore we make a product to serve it. Uh, somebody who applies a sort of media understanding lens or persuasion lens on top of that says, well, products are also made based on demand that can be created, right? People didn't weren't born knowing that they might want to smoke and they didn't start <laughs> out being addicted to tobacco. But once they've smoked a little while and once James Dean does it, sounds cool to start. And once you've done it for a while, seems pretty hard not to keep doing it. I've wondered about home security firms mm -hmm. and insurance firms and those who build profit based on an idea of safety. How much are they just better? Oh, people are, people are scared. We're just giving what they want. And how much are they helping to feed some of those fears or even create them? So I would say an inherent in any activity that is responding to it is also producing, right? So if you're ADT, and you see that your customers, when they call you, they want a security system. They say, right, they fill a survey or they call because an incident has happened in their home, um, that they want your home security system to protect against burglars, right? Um, anytime you make an ad to right, advertise that service in this way, you're saying to the consumer, you should be afraid of this, right? This is a real thing that you should think about. And that's why you need our product, right? So, you know, in, in essence, all advertising creates a need that it then satisfies. So, we always talk about these practices, these images, you know, commercials, television, whatever, as both reflecting and producing, simultaneously doing these things, right? It's addressing a thing that's clearly in culture and it's amplifying or reproducing in some way that then furthers it, right? Until some other thing sort of supersedes it. Uh, so so I, I would argue that all of those representations are then you know, creating the need that they're also yeah. reflecting. A, a phrase you used that was new to me, and I'm only hoping that I'm pronouncing it right. One of the nice things about podcast is I can understand how I think to pronounce Reese Mandel. And got it. I nailed might, it. But I might get it wrong if I'm just reading it. <laughs> and I and something that was there was the was the carceral suburb. And mm. and somebody might think, and I think it's carceral because as in incarceration, but maybe it's carceral. <laughs> uh, uh, tell me about the carceral or carceral suburb. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is perhaps unsurprisingly, you're, you're saying it correctly, and it does come from incarceration. Um, so over since the advent of the war on crime, the war on drugs in the early 1970s under Richard Nixon and the massive incarceration crisis that we have now experienced since then, um, there's emerged a field of study, you know, now called carceral studies, right? That, that it, it, you can spend much of your life studying the ways in which jails work, the way in which policing works and the connections between the state and your own individuality within the system, right? And so there are just, you know, Angela Davis, perhaps being the most famous person sort of who began studying this at that time. Uh, but there are a number of recent books that are all really good about it. Um, one is Paul Renfro's book, Stranger Danger, which connects the kidnapping epidemic, which I talk about, to the carceral state and also, you know, for-profit pri uh, prisons, et cetera, right? Um, so the way I talk about of the carceral suburb is, is actually somewhat different in the way I'm using carceral. So not necessarily the carceral state and the way in which the government um, puts people in jail or, and, you know, punishes them rather than uh, rehabilitates or reforms, 
Um, but when I talk about the carceral suburb, I'm talking about this idea we were just talking about with home alarm systems, yeah. home security, private security systems, gated communities, neighborhood watch that in trying to protect yourself, you're actually imprisoning yourself, right? You are in a prison of your own design, you're jailer and jailed. And that this becomes the essence of these security practices. You're constantly reminded of your imperilment and you're constantly reminded that you have to take care of it. Even though now your private security, right? Are running your neighborhood. You as a homeowner have, you know, by the time of staying your ground and, um, the expansion of the castle doctrine you are allowed to police streets yourself right like and you know we've we've seen all of these tragic and really horrible situations that have emerged from this logic right that you are the police as a homeowner um and you know and, and maybe less so or feeling less restricted uh in this way around incarceration in your own neighborhood or home and it comes to be a custom right it comes to be an expectation like you know this is this one of the central things about the book i was trying to get at and calling it the suburban crisis right is the idea that people who are moving to the suburbs in this sort of second and third wave are going there to experience the things their forebears experience, right? The privileges of living in the suburbs and all the ways that we can imagine. Um, and, and then what they encounter, right, is loss of that privilege. And so part of that privilege is not just home ownership, wealth, right? Um, residential segregation, okay, local control, now, taxes, is, right? This is connecting dots for the listener. Keep, I, I just stepped on you as I was attempting oh, no, that's to okay. agree with you and nod verbally. Keep, <laughs> no, this is, keep, all I'm saying is keep going. This the, the, the synapses are firing. Keep going. Oh, good. All right. That's good to hear. This is, you know, sometimes when you're teaching online, you don't always get the feedback that you need to make sure people are understanding you. So this is good. Um, I need so the idea, button. right? <laughs> I would love, sometimes, you know, that has been a good advent is like the thumbs up and the clapping emojis. So that's useful. Uh, so the idea, right, is they move to the suburbs, they expect, right, not just these privileges, this, uh, or, or um, sort of material things, but also the idea, part of that privilege is not only am I safe, but I shouldn't have to experience fear, right? I should not even be confronted with these threats. They should not be part of my local world, right? Because yeah. you can still imagine somebody going to the suburbs in the 1960s, and many people did, being afraid of people coming from the inner city, right? You know, quite clearly a, a racial fear. Um, not just moving into your neighborhood, but like passing through your neighborhood, right? The logic of white citizens councils and the literal policing of border of borders between, you know, Milwaukee and its suburbs and Detroit and its suburbs, right? Um, so part of that privilege is like, I don't want to have to think about these things. Um, and, and, you know, the, the vignette that opens the book and a number of other stories all get at this idea. Like, I thought I was getting this and I got that. I, I thought I was getting my kids can ride their bike. I can leave my windows open. Now I live in a house where I have to arm a security system and my kids have to be accompanied everywhere they go because there are these faceless predators stalking the streets. Right. And so that's their crisis. It's a crisis of privilege. Whereas the urban crisis, as articulated by Tom Segrew and others, is really a crisis of systemic racism, right? And disinvestment in cities, right? It's a very different crisis, even though each population experiences it as such. So it creates, uh, so the idea of the suburb and the presence of the suburb, the option of the suburb, which is an option for some and not all, uh, and, and other kind of, and trying to expand that option to others can make it sort of a faux option, right? It's, it, or, or, or an actual option that includes faux elements. Uh, <laughs> and it creates sort of this ideal that might have elements of being a personal ideal, but also ends up being not a community community ideal, ends up not being best for pollution, if you care about that, not being best for global warming, if you think that's a real thing, not being best for transportation habits, if you care about not having to sit in traffic for an hour and a half to go to work. The uh, So what sh with, with your thinking and research, what mm -hmm. should we want, right? Or what do we need? And if you 
combine at the sort of vector intersection of what we should want and what we do need, uh, what should we do? So part of what the book tells me or part of what the research helps me understand was the ways in which culture functioned through this rightward turn, right? This sort of, to some level of demonization, but also, you know, part of Reagan's trick, right? It's not only saying government's the problem, but then making it work poorly, right? Yeah. Especially in the, in the ways- A self-defeating already, prophecy. Right, in the ways he's already highlighted, right? He says, well, public housing doesn't work, welfare doesn't work, so we're gonna defund it, right? And so it really doesn't work after that, um, or it works much more poorly. So there's this way in which during this period, and then you see it through the suburbs that privatization and privatism are seen as community values that benefit everybody, right? So. So that failure in that way to look towards structure and systems allows problems to continue while feeling like we're solving them. So the problem of teen suicide or teen pregnancy, right? In the 1980s, there's a massive shift against spending on education, on birth control and condoms, right? In a variety of ways that doesn't actually solve the problem. But instead we say, you know what the problem is? It's Judas Priest. It's ACDC, right? We point the finger at these cultural boogeymen that really turns people's attention towards what they can do in their household to address it. So, you know, you may very well save your son or daughter from um, a fate you didn't want them to have, but it doesn't really address the structure of depression, the structure of, you know, education, right? Those kinds of problems continue to fester and go unsolved because we're looking to individuals. We're looking to cultural solutions. Don't buy this record. Don't think about this thing, right? Um, In these individual ways, it doesn't actually address the thing they're trying to address. You know, I grew up at this very time, you know, if you look at my, like I'm listening to NWA, right? And mm-hmm. Tipper Gore is saying in the same era is saying, well, what's causing this problem is NWA and NWA fans are probably NWA themselves are saying, no, 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 they're telling you what some problems are and they're not the ones inventing it. Uh, and the, but again, there's this, there's this interesting feedback. All right, Columbine, appreciate, appreciate the recommendation. But I want to get to the thing you were saying, uh, because that gets to one of your chapters, which is, you know, punks and mall rats and out of control teenagers. I think one of the most fascinating. So how does that intersect? Keep going with that. (laughs) So um, it's funny, right before I came out with you, I I had been in a bunch of meetings today, literally was coming out of a three hour meeting and I put on YouTube and one of the recommendations was 1983 video from Roosevelt Field Mall in Long Island. And it was a guy who just made this like homemade documentary interviewing kids in the mall. And it was so fascinating because I would have loved to have had it for the book, but it gets at this idea that one of the things that, you know, one of the things we've touched on a lot, you know, sort of the emergence of uh, uh, the new right and the sort of merging of um, economic conservatives with cultural conservatives or the Christian right. Um, and one of the things they agree on with many on the left is there's a crisis of the family that's happening in the 1970s, right? So, so they would argue the outgrowth of feminism, the rise of no-fault divorce, um, and also the sort of liberalization of sex and cultural representations around gender and sex. Um, And so there's a real focus on the family, right? Of course, there's the organization focus on the family, but there's real worry about children and teens and how they're being raised. So that chapter is trying to get at how they're being regulated, right? They are both, we're both afraid for them, right? Who they will become, who their influences are. So those two chapters um, about out of control teenagers and then about sort of cultural influences are really about that fear, but in the, about space in the mall and the arcade, it's really about, uh, we're also afraid of teenagers, right? We, they are the ones who are fighting, drinking, mugging us, shoplifting in the mall. Like, how do we regulate them? So these fears about teens um, and in these manifestations, you know, that I articulate through the language of the time. So hardcore punks, 
um, the arcade addict, as they were called, you know, Pac-Man fever. Sure. Uh, it's time at a cover. It said, is Pac-Man thumb the social disease of the eighties, right? Like, <laughs> but again, like that disease metaphor, right? This idea that there's this cultural disease happening that's spreading through these kids who are redeemable. Right. And this is the key point vis-a-vis your point about NWA. So, in the discourse of the culture wars, in the ways in which Tipper Gore, the PMRC, and others addressed white culture and white cultural representations versus black. So uh-huh. rap, rap artists, and rap fans are all treated as essentially criminal, criminal and irredeemable. Whereas, right, you can demonize Judas Priest, but we're worried about these teen boys. They can be redeemed and reformed because they're good citizens, they're good consumers, they live in the suburbs. So you know, that logic is just pervasive around these debates. Um, I mean, I can go into more about Marvel. No, no, but it even, even gets back know. to the thing we were talking about just before. So the like the, the promise of FDR saying, hey, government will come and it'll give you stuff. Mm-hmm. And you have a bunch of white voters who, you know, any, any range of white supremacy amongst them who are saying, that sounds great. And then Ronald Reagan says, hey, wait, look at all that stuff that was given. It wasn't just given to the white people, it was given to other people. And you don't like that. And you don't like paying for it. So I I, I don't think we can, I, we can't understand American politics without thinking about race and talking about race. And we certainly can't understand the suburbs that of the suburbs without talking about race. I want to go back to the, I want to go back to the question I, I, I started poking at, which is, well, what do we do? If, if we imagine the mm-hmm. thing is not only the suburbs are a window into understanding various critical dynamics, which is a fascinating window and that window of time, but also thinking about the suburbs as a set of choices of transportation and mm-hmm. I was going to say urban development, but of place development, development. right? Yeah. Uh, what should we do now? So there's, as you are, I think, keenly aware from your own work, there's a lot of thinking about how these things fit together through policy, right? And so the policies are housing, affordable housing, um, ownership, rent control, right? Um, And then infrastructure, right? That has to do with that. How do people get where they're going and where do they want to live? And there's no single solution, clearly, right? So often people point to, right? Well, if we can integrate housing, that will solve all these problems. And I think it will. Um, but it doesn't make up for the historical debts. And I think that's often where it's difficult to know know how to address, right? Um, or, or I shouldn't say how to address, but like what, what can we politically actually achieve that gets at that? Um, so I would say like it is maybe asking the questions and having those debates in a way that is that is their good faith debates because what you often end up with, right, are disingenuous bad faith debates about the choices, right? Well, we're just going to get rid of all cars or, you know what I mean? Like right, that, right. that it doesn't really, you can't go anywhere without that common ground of like, we agree that there's a problem to solve here that has to do with historic disinvestment in communities of color, um, historic disinvestment in the things that serve them like public transportation, right? Um, so so I, I'm not sure that I, <laughs> perhaps it's a, not a great note to have here, but I'm not sure what I would recommend other than you have to grapple with the past in these ways, honestly, otherwise you were going to end up with this reproduction of these social systems that don't serve people fairly. Right. It's, you know, like the difference between the, the um, 1619 project and the 1776 project, right? Like one says, if we don't deal with the original sin of slavery and race-based hierarchies, we cannot actually have an equitable society. And another that says, well, white people are of course in charge and we, you know, Native Americans were happy to see us and it's manifest destiny, right? Like, you know, yeah. that that thing, that educational thing, if that is not addressed in some way, it's very difficult to do these other things. Well, let's keep digging into the past. Were there folks who you read 
who were sort of the chicken littles or the crying of wolves or the canaries in the coal mine who were saying, hey, here's an alternative. Instead of this, I mean, I know we're seeing, you know, a, a rise in population. I know we're seeing mm -hmm. uh, uh, the sort of families needing a place with a baby boom. I know that now we have, uh, uh, we now have a highway system and a rise of the automobile. So all these things exist, but wait, we need to do blank in these areas. And I don't just mean sort of the urban planners saying that what we need to do in cities. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, were there, were there early suburban thinkers? I think there was a sincere hope in many of these developments that at some point by building them, they would be inclusive and fair, right? Yeah. Even when they explicitly knew they were building them in a way that was segregated. So, you know, probably most famously, um, Levittown uh, and Abraham Levitt says, I can solve the housing crisis or I can solve the racial problem, but I can't solve both, right? Yeah. Sort of believing that his marketplace was people who did not want to live together with people of a different race, right? So, yeah. uh, but there was some hope or some idea and there were actually planners then who come in that second wave in the 70s, um, the Newtown movement being the, probably the most famous, right? That we can construct a perfectly planned suburb that will address these inequities, right? That will address teenagers, it will address education, it'll address walkability, community environment, and it will address race and class by being inclusive in all these ways. Now, do they? Largely no, right? Um, you know, uh, Nicol uh, Nicholas Dagan Bloom's book about it. Um, there's a recent book by, uh, I think it's Amanda Hurley about sort of ra called Radical Suburbs. So if you're interested in like the planning history of the ways in which people imagined a different suburban world than the one we got, um, I think her book would be the best. I think I'm getting her last name wrong and I feel terrible. Good plug. Um, so but somebody even please, if the book is right, people can search yeah, it. Yeah, somebody look it up. Uh, Amanda Colson, somebody put it in the chat for me, please. It's going to make me insane. Um, and I do want to actually also name check one other person, um, uh, Trisha Rose, historian, uh, cultural historian of African culture and, and rap, had sort of made that point about sort of redeemable subjects and irredeemable subjects with regard to rap music versus white culture like heavy metal. So, you know, cite your sources, right? <laughs> I, I want to go, I want to go further back, or at least back in this conversation where you said people thought they were getting blank and instead mm -hmm. they got blank, right? They thought they were going to be getting freedom from fear, not recognizing that's an emotion, right? That's like being uh, me being fear of disgust or contempt or yeah. sadness. It's like the war on terrorism, joy. right? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to be afraid sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and we've got to manage fear, not only with bars or weaponry, but with sort of understanding and therapy. Uh, and let's jump forward. Productive victimization. Mm -hmm. uh, how the rise of the suburb, how the uh, rise of the neighborhood of fear connects to moving two decades past 2001, right? To 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, how does the, how does all of this relate to the rise of right-wing outrage media that we are dealing with right now? Because it's hard to, I mean, Sometimes it can be easy to forget things. It is hard to morally justify forgetting the fact that the Capitol got attacked. And that's not mm -hmm. something that, that's that's not uh, media hooey. Like that actually really happened. And, yeah. but for like a couple different things, how that turned out could have been real different. That wasn't just a TV show. That was history in the making. How, did, how does what we're talking about in the suburbs connect to what we're dealing with in American politics now? So, the idea that, and, and in some ways, productive victimization of suburbs comes out of 
white suburbanites adapting and adopting the language of civil rights and in some sense misunderstanding the fundamental lesson of civil rights that is people are fighting for their rights because they have actually been victimized by the system right they understand to talk in this way is very powerful and then when these um, threats arise become very prevalent and, and seem very real when you tie together your imperilment with your power and it works, right? It is the, that is the legacy, right? It connects to all of these groups, right? And their reaction to any number of these things. So they don't have to be suburbanites and don't even necessarily have to be white to think of their power as coming from in some way or being legitimated by their endangerment, right? There's no more powerful thing really, except for maybe what about the children in American culture than to say, I was hurt and victimized by this thing. Therefore I get to do this or have this. Um, and when you're able to do it, when you're already in a position of power or privilege, right? you see what you saw at the Capitol amongst many, many other things, right? And when it's, of course, as you, I think you rightly pointed out, um, magnified, reproduced, amplified by the media as actually necessary and as actually focused in these very particular ways, you end up with these results. Um, you know, there's any number of good scholarship, as you pointed out. Um, uh, Nicole Hemmer's book, uh, Blinded by the Right, is also about sort of the rise of right-wing talk media is also very good on this, um, you know, so the structural things about media as well that you're, you're talking about are important. And, and also moving ahead or also now kind of in the now-ish or a few years ago, you had mm -hmm. in the election, Donald Trump making an explicit Nixonian appeal to suburban voters. Yeah. Right? They're, they're trying to get rid of you. And then one of the responses is like, understand the suburbs are a little different than they were in 1975. The suburbs are a little different than they were in 2001. Now mm -hmm. the exurbs may have replaced them as maybe he was talking to the sort of wrong voter. How are suburbs, how, are they changing or how have they changed? So as they've changed and not changed, right? I guess that's maybe the story of any historical argument, right? Um, so his appeal in some sense is his version, you know, it's so hard to parse his appeals, right? Or their purpose because they're not particularly thoughtful, right? Sure. He operates famously on instinct. He doesn't read anything. He doesn't act, you know, I, I, this is not even casting aspersions, right? He says this, like, I don't read yeah. stuff. I need it in graphs. I don't think I just do, right? Yeah. So he sees know, his, polls though. He sees lots yeah, of polls. Yeah, sure. But like, I don't, the fact that he lost tells you he didn't read them, right? So, um, it, it, and, and, you know, millions of people have voted him in both elections. Right. Um, I think ultimately, right, so his appeal fails, I think, because one, suburbanites are smart enough, are canny enough to understand that they don't need him to maintain their power, right? That his appeal, even if it was a good one, would have no real practical effect on their ability to police space or to feel imperiled or not, right? To, to do all these things they're already doing. They don't need him and they really don't need Joe Biden, right? Like we see from, you know, Gerald Ford through both Democrats and Republicans alike um, in state houses and in Congress and in the presidency, that suburban power continues to expand regardless, right? And expands in this way around victimization. So I think there is a fundamental lesson that people will vote for um, at the political level, different things that might affect them at the local level. So there could be a disconnect or the neighborhood of fear is consistent with, right? Joe Biden's appeal, even though Trump is the one who's saying the suburbs will disappear. People know that won't happen. They, it hasn't happened, right? That fair housing hasn't stopped it. Civil rights hasn't stopped it, right? Like, you know, all of these movements have failed, right? So they're not afraid, uh, at least afraid in that way. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. The second part, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> So you asked about so, so sort of why Trump uh, failed or... Yeah, then I asked about, I also asked about exurbs and I oh, asked right, about that's how right, suburbs yeah. have changed. Yeah, That's what it was, how suburbs have changed. So um, there is definitely, you know, particularly since the, the late 90s, but and again, changes in the way housing was worked, um, that suburbs have become more diverse. 
And so this is a place where I actually sort of differ from, I think, many of my colleagues um, in arguing that, yes, diversity is real and it's happening demographically is measurable, right? But I, but I would contend that integration has not, that segregation is still as pervasive hmm. or nearly as pervasive as it was in the earlier periods, you know, maybe not 1958, but maybe 1998. Um, so if you look at the mapping inequality project or others like it, who are really saying, give me your zip code, tell me your street address. I can tell you whether you're white or black. I can tell you what your education level will be. I can tell you your health outcomes and your wealth, right? Going forward, because we know so specifically how segregation has worked, right? And the effects on the different populations. So yes, we have, you know, outside of Washington, DC, we have majority black suburbs, right? In Prince George's County because white people are not there, right? To some degree, yeah. right? That, you know, Andrew Weiss, the scholar of African-American suburbanization says, despite, you know, this diversity, despite um, people of color moving into suburbs, there is not real integration. They have a, just a differentiated experience of the suburbs. And, and I would argue even in places that are quote unquote integrated or where schools um, are made up of, you know, uh, a non-majority population of one race. Yeah. The, uh, uh... You big sort person. That was. I, I, do you read? Did you read the big sort book about? Uh, it, it's, oh yeah. It's worth. It's worth checking out. It's. It's. I remember having it. I don't know if I ever read it, but it was. It so, was I remember having got a list for the book. For I the try to. I try to just get one key fact out of each book so I can cite lots of things without having. It saves me a lot of time. So the. Uh, so I got one fact from it, which is uh, which I've actually I will now mangle a little bit, but basically that, and I think his period was somewhat similar to. So obviously overlap. I think his was 1973. From 1973 to his publication date, which is around 2004-ish. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was when I was in grad school because I remember distinctly. All right, I, I did look at this book, but go ahead. Yes. All right. <laughs> so you had you had a, a, a skosh increase in racial integration. You were four percent more likely to live next door to someone or in the same neighborhood mm -hmm. as someone with a different racial background. But I think you were 48 percent less likely to live next door to somebody or in the same neighborhood as someone who voted differently than you with a different ideology you thought for sure. Yeah. So, so that's sort of his idea of the big sort. And and that is probably is one of the things that put me on to and I, you know, I talked to him back then before the, you know, before the book was published and one of my great, he was going to, he was going to include a chapter on our work in his book and he didn't. So I'll never forgive him. And, and by doing that, I'll continue to plug his book, you know, yeah, I was like, years what later. are you doing? Come on. <laughs> so, so he, uh, uh, and, uh, but, but this intersection of geography and how people are moving and how that mm -hmm. impacts our politics, I remain just fascinated by it. What didn't I ask you that I should have? What are areas that you oh, wow. uh, that you want to make sure we address that that I've screwed up on that I failed to address? Well, I do. I do want to go back to diversity and that question yeah. for a second because I, you know, I write about this in, and in some ways I write about it in the book because my book is focused on white culture, white people to a large degree because of its subject, but you know, it doesn't ignore race, and it, it, but I, I do address race and maybe differently than you might with a different project. Uh, but one of the things I found in finishing the book and doing the conclusion and thinking about the questions you've been asking like about the last 20 years yeah. is what do, how do we think about diversity and how has it functioned in these places? And to a large degree, um, I, I'm not gonna be able to pull the study who wrote it now, but there was one, one study that said basically white suburbanites are the most segregated people in America, right? That when we look at every group and where they live, right? So you might think, oh, the inner city, right? You know, this kind of 
read black or Latino, uh, that's where people are concentrated around race. It's actually, no, they tend to be more diverse and more integrated because of the nature of cities. Right. Um, Or even in um, suburbs that are now majority minority. Right. So like in New Jersey, for example, we have um, a large South Asian population. So there are places like outside of Edison, et cetera, that have, you know, any number of high schools that are majority South Asian are very close to it. Right. Yeah. But that, white people still remain the most segregated, right? And white people remain segregated, not in rural places, but in suburbs. So that idea is still, I think, super important, even though suburb as an idea is changing and being diversified, right? That like putting your finger down or saying what it is, is becoming more difficult because of majority minority suburbs or things that are more polyglot overall. So uh, in terms of questions, I wish I was asked. That's a, you know, that's a good one. Um, I guess I, I never... I never think about what I want to be asked. I always try to be ready. <laughs> well, no, and to some degree, it's not your job. Maybe it's the laziest of all questions. No, what do you it, like to it, talk about. I do but think the, it's a good question. It's like, did you miss anything? Is there something like from the book that you really want to like? No, and, and it's also, and maybe it's also just a defense mechanism because then afterwards, well, how was the interview? Oh, we covered everything. And why you have to say that? Well, because <laughs> right. we hadn't covered everything, you would have known. But anyway. <laughs> that's an excellent point. <laughs> I mean, I, I think one of the things I always say, or like I was asked this by, um, they did like a little like uh, alumni profile for my grad program. And they sort of said, you know, what do you want? What are the one or two things you want people to take from the book? And we've hit on a lot of them today. So, uh, the, but one of the things I think about is, and, I, and it's a point you've actually raised a number of times, which is we need to understand in doing this work, historical work, that culture and media are so central to how people mm-hmm. organize their world, how they understand mm-hmm. and make sense of it. And if you're, so if you're doing work about anything and to ignore those sources or to not think about those frames right and then implicitly the structure underneath them right how the main how the media works at some level mm-hmm. um who has access to what um, you're not going to be able to answer these questions i think in a very effective way about these political questions you're sort of asking or the ways in which people make sense it's not that one is more important than the other but we need to think about the relationships between right structure government politics etc and media right frameworks for understanding whatever they may be so you know it, it's so I like to remember or emphasize that when I talk about the That's book, like that, that was sort of the principle on which I'm operating is like, yeah, hardcore punk matters, even though they don't sell many records. These guys express both spatially and through their music, they're discussed with the suburbs, right? Yeah. They're as disgusted as, you know, the people in the 1950s and the, the folkies making fun of the suburbs and consumerism. Yeah, so, so speaking it, of yeah. speaking of folk and punk white rage and going back <laughs> to the thing you said before, my far too general question when you say the segregation of the white community, I want to do this just before we leave and then you can plug anything you want. Uh, this is uh, an example sort of the right wing lifting the language of mm-hmm. civil rights from the press release by the Christian Newswire yesterday as at least the time of this recording. And here's, I hope I get the, and here, and I have the quote. Uh, it would be like focusing exclusively on the black rioters of the 1960s without ever addressing the social and economic conditions that inspired them to act. If the reason why blacks rioted in the 1960s was a response to long-standing grievances, why is it so implausible to believe that the Capitol riot was a response to long-standing grievances among white working-class communities? So it so this idea of building whiteness as an identity, right? Even Tanasi Coates, right? You know, talking about mm-hmm. Trump as the first white president, uh, the white growing as an whiteness growing as an identity, even as whiteness is more called out as oppressive, it, if it is deemed as the dominant ideal mainstream, uh, is a is a thought that I at least wanted to tag. Uh, anything you any any final thought you have or anything you want to plug other than the book? Well, I do want to talk about that for a minute if I can, because. Please. You know, one of the, the, again, one of the central things we teach, right? So I I imagine from any college, 
anywhere, any professor who's teaching history, if they're teaching anything about race is saying, we need to consider whiteness as a social construction, just like blackness or any other racial category, that it is being constructed by society for the purposes of relationships of power. And so, you know, the emergence of whiteness studies, right, happens in the 80s in, in academia, um, and it grows out of any number of movements, critical race theory and legal history, but also like David Rodiger and sort of working class and class histories talking about the wages of whiteness or what we get, at, you know, the investment of whiteness that you just automatically have, right, the privilege of whiteness. Um, so that, that point's an important one to always consider, right, that we sort of think of race as everything but whiteness, right, um, rather than how is whiteness constructed and what does it mean? And on the point of civil rights or thinking about the uh, adaptation to the civil rights movement by um, right-wing or conservative politicians, right? So uh, I can't remember when it was, maybe it was sometime in the last five or six years, uh, a journalist unearthed this interview with Lee Atwater, right? So Lee Atwater being the sort of architect of the Reagan campaign um, and sort of famous for his cutthroat <laughs> um, tactics, right? Yep. And he says, essentially- And, uh, his, and his deathbed and his deathbed apology. Yes, right? And he says, right? So in 1950s, you can yell the N-word, right? And that'll yeah. work. And then by the 1960s, right, it's states' rights and it's busing. And then by the 80s, right, we have to talk about it in these much more generic and applicable terms because what we want our people to feel is though they are being victimized, right? The implicit thing is white grievance is real and it must be addressed. And so the seeds of it, right? And there is some, again, to all of these things, there's always a seed of reality. There's always something there, right? About white class politics is probably real about a white working class person. Um, but much of this, right, is not about quote unquote economic anxiety quite clearly, right? And the misnomer that Trump's base is somehow white and rural when it's actually white, middle, upper class, rich and suburban, right? Or even urban in some places. So remembering that that's actually who's benefiting from Trump no, yeah, the, supporting the, him. The white working class voter was his target swing voter. It is not his base. His, the, the, the base that primarily was funding his thing, that was pushing his thing, is the same base pushing that stuff for a long time. And exactly. he thought if he could get some swing voters, some poorer swing voters in Wisconsin, Michigan, et cetera, he got to be president even if he couldn't win the national popular vote. But I want to say thank you so much to Kyle Reese Mandel for this time today. The book is Neighborhood of Fear, The Suburban Crisis in American Culture, 1975 to 2001. Thank you so much for being with us in 2021. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Democracy Nerd is produced and recorded in X-Ray Studios. Thanks to producer Kyle Curtis and Chase Spross. Thanks also to Kat Buckley for the graphics. I'm Jefferson Smith. We're at the beginning of this. Please subscribe. And give us a five-star review, even if it is only in the hopes that we eventually earn it. Help spread the word. You can check out X-Ray's podcast page, xraypod.com, for past Democracy Nerd episodes and other X-Ray offerings. And thank you, Democracy Nerd.